Road to Cinema is proud to announce its partnership with Final Draft Screenwriting Software. We're going to be giving away two free vouchers to purchase the Final Draft Screenwriting Software coming up in March. So stay tuned and follow us on Twitter at JogRoad for the latest updates on the Final Draft Software giveaway. Welcome to episode number 24 of the Road to Cinema podcast featuring editor and filmmaker Randy Wilkins. We'll discuss Randy's experience editing his first feature film, directed by Spike Lee, The Sweet Blood of Jesus. We'll also discuss Randy's mentorship from Spike Lee, being in Spike Lee's NYU Tisch graduate film class. We'll also discuss Randy's critically acclaimed web series, Docket 32357. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter for the latest updates at Jog Road. And now we join editor and filmmaker Randy Wilkins as he discusses his experience and some of the vital lessons he learned from Oscar-nominated director Spike Lee. Well, the story starts uh, a little bit before um, before I met Spike and before I went to NYU. Uh, I was I had an opportunity. Um, to play professional baseball, or at least I had a chance to play professional baseball. Um, and I suffered a pretty significant knee injury. Um, and um, through that knee injury, I wasn't able to complete school on time. So my senior year, I had taken a film and video narrative class uh, to fulfill my art credit so I could graduate from school. Um, and the professor, Mary Haversick, thought I had some talent, but at the time, I didn't really think that being a filmmaker was a real thing, an attainable thing. I thought it was some magical process um, that only a selected few were able to uh, be a part of. So I didn't really take her seriously. So um, after I got hurt and returned to school and graduated, uh, 9-11 happened. Um, and I wasn't, I'm from New York, so I wasn't really interested in coming back to the city right away. Um, so I had an opportunity to do a documentary on a black-owned barbershop in a predominantly white neighborhood. Um, so I stayed on campus. I made the documentary. The film was a hit. It did really well. Um, it was able to bring some segregated neighborhoods together in one place, and I caught the bug from that. Um, and then uh, I was hired by the school to be a filmmaker in residence, and Spike ended up being a guest of the school for three days. And through that time, I was able to pick his brain and build some semblance of a relationship with him. Um, and then he offered to uh, give me a recommendation for NYU. So um, I, I applied, eventually I got in. Um, and in my third year at NYU, Spike was my teacher. He always teaches a master class for the third year students. Um, and during that time, during my time at NYU, I was interning and um, working over at 40 Acres in the editorial department with Barry Brown. Uh, and then I just worked my way through the ranks uh, through 40 Acres, becoming, eventually becoming the editor on A Sweet Blood of Jesus and some other projects. But um, I've also done a lot of my own films. I've done a lot of shorts. I just finished a web series last year that did pretty well that was based off um, a successful short that I had. My thesis film, Los Valdos, was um, uh, broadcast on HBO for two years. Um, and the web series, Docket 32357, 
did pretty well, won some awards, and uh, got some pretty good exposure. So I'm trying to balance between um, the technical jobs and also my true passion of writing and directing. So try to try to stay as busy as I can. Yeah, no, I saw uh, the web series on your website, uh, Docket32357. Uh, it's really great. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Oh, uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I was wondering if, um, because I'm a huge fan of Spike Lee as a filmmaker, and I've always wondered uh, sort of what it's like being in a class with Spike Lee. And I think he's also the artistic director uh, at at the Tisch Film Program. Is that right? Yes, he's been the artistic director for more than 15 years, I believe, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Um, So uh, he's a tremendous... Um, support for the program. He's always raising money for the program, so he has a, a very significant presence at Tisch. Um, his class is a little different because he, he's so prolific um, and he's always working that the class ranges from kind of breakdowns of films and different genres that have had a major influence on him uh, to actually working on his set. So sometimes you could be in the classroom. Uh, if he's working on a current project, he'll bring the students on to work on set as PAs. Um, when we did If God is Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, he brought in his students to be our interns in the editorial department, um, which was a major help. So we had we pretty much had an army of interns. So he tries to make it um, as interactive as possible. He wants people to learn on set. He wants people to gain professional experience. Um, and he also just demonstrates a very, very strong passion for film and filmmaking. And it was helpful also because he was able to bring real-life experience to whatever films or whatever topic he was discussing at the time because, he's, like I said, he's always working. So um, it stood out a little bit from the other classes just because um, professors were focusing so much on the technical aspects and what we needed to do craft-wise to be better filmmakers Spice class was more of about, okay, these are my experiences, these are my professional experiences, and this is what you have to look forward to. This is what you have to do to make it within the industry, not just from a craft-wise, but craft sense, but also from um, a marketing sense, a business sense, uh, how to handle yourself as a professional, things of that nature. So it, it was kind of a larger picture, more so than some of the other classes that, that you would take at Tisch. Yeah, no, that's a great privilege because, uh, you know, so often in film programs, it's so theoretical and it's outside um, sort of like the practical day-to-day life of being a filmmaker and making a living at it and really being out in that world. But it seems like Spike's class is really about, and, you know, Spike's way of teaching is really about sort of showing you what what it's like to be out there and how to navigate that world. Right. Yeah, it was a tremendous experience, um, especially being able to work um, on some of the projects that um, that he had going on at the time, um, I was I was in a little different situation because I was already working with him. Um, but for the other students, it was a tremendous experience, and they were able to leverage that into leverage that, those experiences into their own projects, and also for um, jobs that they've been able to take up since then. So I know in Red Hook summer, a lot of the positions were filled by his students so that was a tremendous experience for them for them to be on a professional feature set for a summer um, and to see a master do his thing uh, on a day-to-day basis so he tries to um, he tries to give as many opportunities as he can to to all of his students so it's it's tremendous opportunity 
Yeah, I was wondering um, sort of what you think might be one of the most important lessons that you've learned from Spike Lee over the time that you've been with him, whether it be uh, something that you observed uh, him do or just maybe a lesson that he kind of imparted to you. Wow, there's a lot. It's hard to narrow it down. Uh, one thing as a filmmaker, the details, the details, 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 very important. Um going through everything with a fine-tooth comb, maximizing every shot that you have, um, maximizing every performance, making sure that um, you've done the most with what you have, um, and being aware of the, the small details that can really make a huge difference in the quality of a film, the quality of the storytelling. Um, as a businessman, just like the relentless work ethic. Um, he is constantly working. I'm not sure when he sleeps. Um, he has a lot of projects going on. He has a lot of meetings for future projects. Um, he has the teaching. Um, he's, he also has um, a lot of business deals with a lot of different brands that he's able to expand beyond um, just filmmaking. So it's just to me, it's just the constant work ethic, the, the, the desire and passion to create as much as you can within a day, within a week, within a month, um, and that you have to continue to work. Um, you have to continue to create, um, and you have to challenge yourself. Um, so those are two big lessons that I've learned just watching him. Um, so, I mean, there's so many. I, I could, uh, we, can, we can have a full conversation <laughs> just on those things, but um, those are two things that stand out right away, um, the incredible work ethic and the attention to details, because that kind of, um, not kind of, but it does make a huge difference in the quality of the work that you're creating. Oh, totally. Um, one of my favorite books uh, that I've ever read on the filmmaking process is uh, the Spike Lee. I, it's his journal uh, through making She's Gotta Have It. And oh, yeah, Spike's Gotta it. Have It. Yeah. yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I recommend that book to, to anyone who really just wants to sort of learn what it's like to just put together their first film. And, you know, you see that, I mean, you read that drive in that journal and, you know, constantly going through the script and refining it and figuring out ways to raise money and put the project together. Uh, you know, you just sort of see that work ethic so much in that book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, to be quite honest. Um, and he does maximize the day. There have been times when I've had to be um, in the office at 6 in the morning. I won't leave till 6 or 7 at night, uh, which, is, which isn't normal for... Um, an editor schedule or post production schedule on a you know on a day to day basis, um, but for him you, you got to get the job done. Like there there are no limitations on what needs to be done or what needs to get done to make sure that the film is the best that it could possibly be. And it could be something like the Sweet Blood of Jesus, or it could be a short that we're doing for ESPN. Could be a commercial. It doesn't matter that um, you know you have to maximize the time that's available to you and and the work within that time so um great lesson amongst many others um but yeah his, his work ethic is isn't rivaled by anybody that i know at least um so he's he's at the top of the list when it comes to that yeah i was wondering about um your experience working as an assistant to barry brown because he was involved editing some of you know spike lee's most uh you know significant films early in his career do the right thing uh malcolm x jungle fever uh, I think most of most of uh, Spike Lee's films were edited by Barry Brown, so I was sort of curious uh, what he imparted to you and what you observed working with him, and uh, you know, kind of uh, some some lessons. 
Barry's awesome. Um, Barry, so Barry and the Spikes still work together. Um, that's a partnership and a friendship that will last uh, beyond their careers. Um, so Barry, Barry's still there. Um, what I learned from Barry was just storytelling and how how you tell the story from an editor's perspective um, and really the tenets of what makes a good story. Um, he, he just has a natural gift for that. Um, there the weren't technical things that he taught me, but the, the big things were how to craft a story, how to craft a scene, um, what were the important things um, that you needed to make a scene work, and how those sequences build up to the greater story. Um, and also being willing to take some chances that may or may not work, something that a director may go for, may not go for, but... Um, you have to experiment sometimes and you have to try things that aren't necessarily conventional or according to the script. Um, sometimes we have to do what's best with the available footage that you have. So um, I would think, I think that Barry's a risk taker. A lot of times the risks end up paying off. Um, but the big thing I learned from him was just learning how to tell a story from the editor of a perspective, which has been great for me, not just as a young editor, but also as a young director, um, understanding like what those elements are to, to make or to tell a great story. Um, so that, that's probably the biggest thing that I've taken from Barry. Yeah, I was curious uh, as well, um, you know, you've, you've done so much, you've been an editor, you've been a cinematographer, a director, I believe you also, you're also a screenwriter. Uh, is there one area that you're most fascinated with or do you feel like it's sort of important to understand everything and, and even know how to function in all of those jobs? Well, everything for me uh, is based off of my um, love for directing. So shooting um, or editing, everything for me is still within, all the lessons that I learned are still within the context of being a director and being the best director that I can be. Um, I have learned over time that I think knowing as many positions as possible can only make you a better filmmaker. Um, so I'm appreciative of all the experiences that I have. And it's not just understanding what the responsibilities are, but it's, again, it's, learning how to tell the best story from each major position's perspective, uh, learning how to compose better shots. So why are we composing this shot uh, the way that we are? Is this necessary? Is there a way to make it better? Um, learning how to construct the story in the edit, um, you know, paying attention to the edges of the frame, not just as a cinematographer, but also as an editor. That helps me as a director. Um, every part of that process that, uh, I've had the opportunity to be part of has really built a stronger foundation for me for my work as a director. So they all have equal value, learning different things, obviously, given the positions, but um, everything is in, is in the context of me being a better director. So um, I've had the privilege of learning from so many different perspectives that I think it's made my own work better. I think something like Docket um, wouldn't have been as strong if I didn't have the experiences that I had from the technical position. So um, I love all of it, but my, my true love is directing. Um, but I also love editing. I love shooting. I, I just love filmmaking. I love being a part of that process in any way that I can be a part of it. So um, it's exciting, but directing would be the big thing for me. Yeah. Um, I was curious. Uh, so going into The Sweet Blood of Jesus, that was the first feature film that you had ever edited. You had edited commercials, uh, shorts, uh, you know various other projects, documentaries, but 
this was your first uh, narrative feature. So I was wondering, uh, going into the sweet blood of Jesus, uh, how did you prepare and how did, uh, how did you approach, uh, you know, putting the film together? Well, it's funny. I didn't prepare, um, because I wasn't supposed to be the lead editor on it. Um, the way it worked was Barry was going to be the lead editor as he normally is on most of Spike's projects. Um, but he had to leave the country to work on another film. Um, so I was going to be his assistant from the States and kind of be the go-between Spike and Barry uh, for the two different locations. But as time was going on, Barry wasn't able to get to the scenes as quickly as Spike wanted to. And um, Spike and I would view the dailies, and he would give me the notes, and I'd send them to Barry. But after a while, uh, Spike would ask me if I could cut these small scenes. So it might involve one cut, it might involve two cuts. It wasn't anything, like, too complicated or um, complex. So I would do those. Um, and we would get some, some scenes from Barry, but the more that uh, Spike and I were watching the dailies, he started to ask me if I could cut this scene and that scene and let's do this. And then it just got to the point where it was like, all right, cut that scene, let's cut this scene. And after like two weeks of this, I started to realize that I was becoming the editor. Um, and all of a sudden, but you know, before you knew it, the entire film had been cut, at least uh, a rough cut. Um, and most of the scenes were uh, scenes that I had worked with Spike on and also by myself. So there wasn't um, a heads up or a meeting or a discussion about me transitioning into the editor position. I just got thrown in the fire. Um, I basically got thrown into the water and it was, I was either going to sink or swim. So there, I wasn't prepared for it. Um, I didn't have an opportunity to figure out how I wanted to approach the film. I just had to do it um, pretty much on the spot. Um, so it was a different, I guess it was a different way to get into it, um, but I think I succeeded at it once I was comfortable because, I mean, I, I won't lie, I was definitely scared and intimidated being put in that position and being in a room with Spike putting this film together, especially because I didn't think it was, you know, that wasn't the original plan. Um, so I think the more confident I became, um, the more I voiced my opinions on certain scenes, um, the more I made suggestions. And I think I really took ownership of the film once I became comfortable and came to grips with the fact that I had become the editor um, and that I was placed in this position where um, I was really, really able to collaborate with Spike on a higher level than I had ever done before. Um, so I think the more comfortable I became, the more I took ownership of the story and really sought out with the story um, that Spike was trying to tell. And I think we did a great job. I mean, I'm, I'm, especially for my first feature and not really knowing that I was going to be placed in that position, I'm pretty proud of the work uh, that I did on the film. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an incredible film. And what also uh, uh, took me was the, the music score. Um, I was curious how important the music score was in in cutting the film and uh, was it more of something where you sort of took the music score after you would cut or were you cutting any scenes to the music score itself? No, all the music, well, the, the music, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. The music is obviously a major part of the film. Um, and yeah, I think Bruce Hornsby was the at, composer. I'm sorry, what was that? Oh, was uh, Bruce Hornsby the composer? Yeah, Bruce, it was Bruce Hornsby, but then there was also... Um, a 
11 or 12 songs that uh, we put in the film that came from unsigned musicians. Spike went to his social media and made a call for unsigned music. Um, and he got about 800 selections, I think. And he listened to all of them. Um, he listened to all 800 songs. And then we eventually cut it down to 12 that made the cut. Um, and then we had we had a few weeks where we would just sit down and play around with what song would go, what scene, um, what worked the best. So that, that by itself took about two weeks. And Bruce Hornsby um, was composing the score as we had reached a point um, where the film was close to being locked. But we didn't use temp music. Um, we spent about two or three months just putting the film together and cutting picture without worrying about the music. We didn't have one discussion about music during that time. We were just trying to make the story as tight as we could possibly make it. Um, and then when we got to a point where we were comfortable with the story and where we were at, then we had a screening um, with Bruce. Um, Bruce had some ideas. Um, Spike and Bruce had numerous conversations along with the music editor, uh, Marvin. And um, I can't think of Marvin's last name right now. It escapes me, but uh, they had multiple conversations about what they wanted to do to construct the score. Um, but as from the editor perspective, I didn't have to change anything. I didn't cut to any music. Um, everybody's um, contribution on the music side was based off of what I had already done. Um, so there wasn't anything that I had to change around or um, adjust because of the music. They, they pretty much, um, Bruce wrote to the, to the picture, and then the songs that we were able to get from the unsigned musicians, we just played around until we found the right combination between song and picture. Um, but the one thing that people don't really realize or give Spike credit for is that he has tremendous uh, knowledge of music because his dad is the great jazz musician Bill Lee who um, did this wrote the scores for about four or five of Spike's first films yeah I think she's got to have it uh, he had he had composed the music for that as well yep. yeah uh, she's got to have it school days uh, Mo better blues do the right thing um, that those were all his dad's compositions so Spike has a tremendous knowledge of music. He knows exactly what he wants. And the, the impressive thing is that he can actually communicate it musically. He can tell you what instruments he thinks would work here. Um, he can he can have a conversation with Bruce and tell him about the emotional tone, but in more specific terms than I ever could. I don't, I don't have as um, advanced a knowledge of music as he does. So the conversations that they had were really, really intricate discussions um, because Spike has such a command of music himself. And I, I don't think he gets credit for that. I don't, I don't think enough people know that about him. That's, why, that's another reason why the music in the films that he's done it, is so strong and has such a presence is because he's really a part of that process like he is uh, with the, the video and audio aspects of the film. He, he's really, really entrenched in it. Um, so music obviously has a major part in the film, um, especially in the scene in the church with the uh, Little Piece of Heaven Baptist church band. Um, that was an interesting scene to cut. That was the most challenging scene that I cut in the entire film. Um, but it's also my favorite scene in the film. I, 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 love, I love the music, but I also love the way that 
um, that scene was handled. Um, so that was, and that was also the one thing. Speaking of just being a director in my in my own right, there were days where Spike would continuously tell me, you know, music makes a difference. Music makes a difference, and it doesn't always have to be the conventional approach to music. You don't always have to go with the most obvious way to apply music to scenes. Um, and he told me to always be adventurous with how I applied music or how I use music in my own work. Um, so, yeah, music is a, a very important part of this film and all of Spike's films. So that was that was one thing that I, I really learned a lot, not just as an editor, but also as a director. Yeah, no, it's just it's interesting to uh, to watch scenes sometimes or just, you know, you put like your TV on mute and just imagine like the scene without music, any, you know, any scene from any movie. And it's just incredible how music can just shift what's going on in the scene, the intention of it, and, you know, just have mm-hmm. such an impact on the viewer. And uh, that's definitely something throughout all of Spike's films. And uh, one of my favorites as well, uh, Mo Better Blues, uh, with right. Denzel Washington as the trumpet player, which, uh, right. you know, one of my favorites. Yeah, I think we spent close to a month just working on the music. Um, that was also while we started doing the sound mix. Um, but we, we spent a tremendous amount of time on the music um, because the picture is pretty much locked. I mean, we made some changes as we went along, but um, the application of the music was very meticulous, very methodical, um, and time-consuming. I mean, we would just spend days not touching the picture, just playing around with the music, adjusting the music. Um, it, was, it, was an, it was an enlightening experience from that uh, perspective. Yeah, I was curious, um, you know, sort of your collaboration process as an editor. Um, how much does Spike Lee sort of give you in terms of uh, working on your own, working on the scenes, constructing it on your own? And then also, too, sort of the balance between that and uh, Spike sort of being right next to you in the edit bay and, you know, working with you to sort of, um, you know, cut the scenes with you as a, as a unit, the two of you. Right, well, again this being my first feature uh, and getting thrown into the fire. For the first month or two, we were collaborating on the scenes. Um, the the one, one of the rules that Spike has, it doesn't have many, um, but one thing is that we would have to watch the dailies before we cut a scene. So uh, a lot of Spike's ideas and his thoughts on how he wants a scene constructed is actually through uh, screening dailies. Um, so he would he would always tell me, okay, like I want to keep this piece. We have to make this work. This is an important line. Um, there's always a lot of improvisation um, from his actors when he shoots. So he would tell me he likes that line. He thinks that would work or that doesn't work. So a lot of the scene construction is coming just from watching the dailies themselves, not necessarily from the cut. Um, so once we would watch all the dailies for a particular scene, then we would cut it together. Now, as I got more confidence, and I think as he got more confidence in me, that he wasn't in the room as much. I was allowed to cut the scene how I thought I, it would work, of course, using input from the notes that he would give me. And then we would just work together. Um, he would give me more notes based off the cut, and then he would go away, and then I would just keep working on it. Um, but he, the more confidence he had in me, the more he allowed me to play around with scenes and try different things and have suggestions and... Uh, it became more of a collaborative effort as time went on. Um, at the beginning, it was the two of us together, and then as time went on, 
I would put in my own ideas, I would construct a scene, and then he would come in and take a look at it. Um, so, you know, it was, it, if I'm working with him now, it's more just watch, this, watch the dailies. He goes away, I cut stuff, he comes back, and we just talk about the cut. But when we were doing this, especially in the beginning, um, he definitely was in the room with me. And, you know, he had to show me the way that he wanted scenes to be cut and what he prefers and um, sort of like how he likes things to go. And then I think once I got that foundation and there was a confidence on both sides, he allowed me to have more freedom. So um, and it was great. I mean, it was great. I, I definitely needed him around at the beginning, given the way that I was put in the position. But, um, again, like I said before, once I started understanding the story better and um, being comfortable, then I was allowed to, you know, have more of my own influence on the film. And by the end of the film, I, I feel like there's a lot of spite, but I think I did a lot of strong work to help enhance what he was trying to achieve. Yeah. No, I think that's uh, great to have that sort of give and take in the collaboration process. Uh, you know, when a director can trust his editor and or just any anybody, you know, whether it be cinematographer, anybody on a crew. So, so you know, it ends right. up enhancing the movie as a whole. Yeah, speaking of which, um, the cinematographer, Daniel Patterson, was my classmate at NYU. And um, we were both kind of thrown in the fire in our respective positions. Um, so... Daniel did a phenomenal job and made my life easier, actually, um, in cutting the footage because it was it was just so well constructed, beautiful images. Um, so it's funny that we were classmates and then we ended up being put into these key positions on yeah. such a great film that you know it's, it's it's pretty cool that we were able to continue our relationship beyond um, our time together at NYU. Was uh, was that his first feature as well? Uh, oh, no, no, no. He's, he was a DP on uh, Dunhill Road and Newly Weeds, and Daniel, Daniel has been uh, well on his way in the feature world, so he, he's, he's had a tremendous start to his career. Yeah. I was wondering um, how important it is for you to look at the dailies over and over again and really sort of um, know all the footage before you actually sit down and, and start constructing a scene. Oh, it's critical. I mean, you you can only work with what you have. So you have to be able to, um, you know, go according to the script, but you need to know the footage well enough where if there's something that isn't working, you have to know that you have something there to create a solution to the problem. So you have to be really intimate with everything that is available to you. And you never know, there could be things that happen before they even put a slate in that could work. There might be a look, there might be a smile, there might be a subtle movement that somebody has at any point that you didn't really think would be important before you started cutting the film, but it might be the critical piece to make the scene work. So you, you're always reverting back to the dailies. You're always reviewing what you have. Um, you have to have an, an intimate knowledge of what's available to you so that whenever there are situations where you need to solve a problem, you know that there's a solution there somewhere. Um, or if you don't have a solution, then you need to figure out how this is going to work. Um, so it's, it's critical. I mean, it, as an editor, you have to know the footage. You have to know um, what's available to you. So it's, I mean, that's one of the most important duties of an editor is to make sure that you know what you have. Yeah. Um, I was curious. I've, I've asked uh, many other editors this question. I've, I've gotten different answers from people. 
but um, throughout the production of the film, uh, were you ever looking at the script of maybe like a scene that was about to be shot, uh, you know, the next day or a few days from now and, and sort of say to Spike Lee, uh, maybe I suggest this type of coverage in order to make the scene work or, uh, Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not suggesting anything to Spike about how he should cover a scene. I mean, he's a, he's a master and, um, he certainly doesn't need my input on how he wants to tell a story or how he wants to cover it. Um, he's very, very clear on how he wants to do things and he's very clear on how he wants to approach a scene so that there isn't really anything from me that I could really add to it in terms of um, him being on set and what he needs to shoot. So I don't, um, I don't get involved in that process on the narrative end. Sometimes um, I have suggested things for docs I'm telling, reminding him things that we might need from particular interview subjects um, or things that um, we might need more sound bites from people. And in that case, um, he's very receptive because, you know, their interviews, you don't know what you're going to get. They're docs. Um, there's a little bit more um, volatility in terms of what you may get and what you might not get. But when it comes to the narrative, Spike has a very, very clear idea of how he wants to approach it. So for me as an editor... I'm just going off of what he shoots. Uh, I'm just going off of the daily, so I don't really need to tell him that we need a close-up or something. Because he he, has, he just has a clear idea of how he wants to handle each scene, and then he shoots that, um, which makes him such a great director. If he, he has an idea, and he's able to execute that idea according to um, how he feels the best way is to capture that, so that I, there's really no reason for me to get involved in that part of the process. Yeah, um, I was curious too because you've also uh, worked on some on docs with Spike Lee for Thirty for Thirty uh, for ESPN, and then uh, some sort of doc commercials. Uh, I think one was with Carmelo Anthony, and then uh, also to um, the uh, stage show, the Mike Tyson. I believe you worked as an assistant, yep. and then uh, there was also the the Cat Williams uh, stage show as well. So I, I was sort of curious, uh, working as an editor, the difference between. Uh, editing a narrative feature and then sort of uh, a documentary and then as well as just sort of a, a stage show uh, editing something like that. Those all seem sort of, you know, three different uh, uh, genres or three different sort of styles of filmmaking in a sense. Right. Um, well, the big one big thing is the structure of each project. Um, obviously, with the script, you have an inherent structure for the story um, and you're basically, you have you have some restrictions on how you can build it because you're obviously just going off of something that was predetermined in a way. With docs, you have way more um, flexibility in terms of how you want to construct the story. Um, you also, it, it's also more malleable because you really don't know what an interviewee is going to say. You don't know what kind of verite footage you're going to get, um, B-roll that you might get, access that you might have. So docs are a little bit, um, they're, they're fun in the sense that you really have a lot of influence on how you can construct the story from the beginning to the end, um, because you're really at the mercy of whatever it is you can capture. Um, and I also feel with doc, editing docs, um, you have to be mindful and respectful of the voices that are a part of the story. Um, in a script, your you know your characters are who they are, and you can construct.
construct the characters and manipulate things in a way. And of course, you can, I guess, manipulate is not, manipulate is not the best word for a doc, but you have to make sure that you respect the voice of the person that you are following. You can't, at least for Spike and I, you can't um, speak for somebody. You can't force somebody to say something just because you wanted to fit a particular narrative. So there's a there's a balance that you have to strike because you're representing other people and you're representing people that trust you and you don't want to violate that trust. You don't want to put them in a light um, that is negative towards them. So you always have to be conscious of that when you're doing a doc. For a stage show, you're really thinking about timing, you're thinking about rhythm, you're thinking about the audience. Um, especially with something like comedy, you have to go with the rhythm of the comedian so that you don't ruin the jokes. Um, and you also want to find out ways that you can enhance the jokes, that you can connect the live audience with the television audience with the comedian himself. Um, so, and also, I, that's a situation where you're like really conscious of the small details in the frame. Um, and that, that was something that I learned a lot on the Cat Williams pieces, not just the macro, uh, perspective, but also the micro perspective, because Spike shot with eight cameras, so you have to decide when you want to cut to another camera, why are you choosing that camera at that time, how does that, how does the frame size affect the storytelling of the joke, um, are there people's heads in the way of a camera, is somebody coming in and out of the frame, and if they do, you got to cut out of it, there was a lot of camera movement from a lot of the cameras, so um, you have to make sure that you're aware of sort of those editing rules about when you cut out of camera movement. Uh, they all have their own challenges and their own exciting aspects to it. And they're, they're similar in some ways and drastically different in other ways. So um, it's nice that, I, that I've had the opportunity to work on so many different types of projects um, just because it keeps your skills sharp and it's also just great learning experiences. Yeah, no, just sort of so many different types of filmmaking, and uh, especially with you know something like the Cat Williams uh, piece or even Mike Tyson having so many cameras, sort of capturing the same thing at once. It's uh, I mean, it just must be a daunting task to 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 begin editing that, to begin putting all those pieces together. It is at the beginning, but once you get a rhythm and you get an understanding of what you're trying to get across, then. It isn't as daunting as you would think, and also you have you have other people that have an idea of how you want to tell the story. So it's not just Spike, but you might you're going to get notes from HBO, you're going to get notes from Cat Williams people because they also have an idea and a, and reasonings for why they want certain shots at certain times. Um, so with Cat Williams. Uh, one big note was making sure that we had enough close-ups because this was Cat's like triumphant return to HBO. So they really, the executors really wanted to make sure that the audience could connect with Cat and like see his facial expressions and really, really be with him and make it as intimate as it could possibly be. Um, so that also will dictate how you're gonna cut a project like that because there are other people that have, um, that also have influence and wanna make sure that the story is told a particular way. Um, so. Once you once you get going, um, it doesn't. It's not as daunting as you would think. Yeah. Because all the all the cameras are all the angles are really complementing one another. You always know that if something doesn't work here, you have seven 
other choices to, you know, to take you to the next point. So the cameras are supporting you and not working against you. And I think once you have, you understand that that's the case. And I think it makes cutting it fun and, and, and not as uh, overwhelming as you would think at, you know, at the beginning. Yeah, I'm curious too. Um, do you know if you know when Spike Lee is setting up where those cameras are going to be? Uh, is he also directing sort of during the live show, as far as if one camera is moving or sort of focusing in on one particular aspect? Yeah, well, um, I believe I can't remember who the DP was on Cat Williams. I think it was it might have been Maddie Libatique, but. Um, they, they'll map, Spike and Maddie will map out where the cameras will be on the plot before the show, obviously. And, um, you'll have the operators who are doing the, the dolly or the jib or the crane or whatever they're, you know, whatever they're using for that particular show. Um, and Spike is in a room with, and he can see all the monitors along with Maddie. And they're, yeah, they're, I mean, he's basically directing the show from a room. He can see all eight cameras. Um, some of the the camera on the track and the crane shot, they're for the most part always in movement. There might be times when Spike would tell them to, to rest and just stop and hold the frame for a while. Um, but there's a line cut that's going on, so um, you can name the cameras like A, B, C, D, E, um, however many cameras you have, or you can go like one through eight, however they label the cameras. And he will call out certain cameras, and that'll be a, the cut for the line cut. Um, and then they record that, and they send it to me, just so I have a reference, so I have an idea of what Spike was thinking in the moment. So um, I can always refer to the line cut if I felt like I wasn't sure which camera to use. I can always go and use that as a reference. But yeah, he's he's directing it. He's not just standing back and letting them do whatever. Um, they're all on headsets, and he's communicating along with Maddie with all the camera operators and capture certain things that they want uh, and making sure that, again, going back to that supporting one another, that each angle is complementing one another so they're not overlapping or there aren't as many options in the edit uh, as there could possibly be. Yeah, no, it's just, uh, it's incredible. You know, those those live shows, I don't think people realize really how much goes into it and it's not just sort oh, of yeah. like planting a camera down and having them go at it. It's really meticulously uh staged with the camera work and everything yeah big time a lot of a lot of work goes into it uh, i was curious with uh the sweet blood of jesus you mentioned earlier that the church scene uh being a favorite of yours i was wondering if there was any other moment in the film that you feel the most proud of uh editorial wise and sort of uh if it went above and beyond what your original expectations of it were when you put it together yeah that's a great question um Definitely the church scene. I mean, that's number one. Um, the scene with Lucky Mays and Hess um, in the Martha's Vineyard bar is one. Um, the scene where Tangier is introduced uh, to Ganja when she arrives at the house. That's another. Um, wow, there's a lot of scenes in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> um You know what scene I really like, even though editorially I honestly didn't do much on, is the scene. Um, oh, there's another scene uh, when the uh, when Hess meets Sahara, the uh, the mother of the baby in the projects in the foreground projects. I really 
I really, really like cutting that scene. Oh, it's one of my favorites as well. And the, I think the music in that works great, too. Yeah, it was great. It's great. I, I loved cutting that. Um, just with all the, the dolly shots and how they complemented one another and just, just the way that Spike covered it really, really made it fun to, to edit. Um, and speaking of that scene, uh, the scene that comes a few, uh, a few minutes later when, um, Hess leaves her apartment and the baby's in the, uh, crib, um, editorially, I didn't, we just had to choose the right take and uh, it's one shot, but as a filmmaker, it's, it's simple, but it's, it, it is so impactful and so well done. Um, you know, I just really appreciate it as a director how Mike approached that scene. He could have covered it with a bunch of different angles and, uh, you know, like played it up, but he kept it simple because he realized that the striking image of the baby in the crib and the mom in the bed and Hess just leaving was all that needed to be uh, conveyed. We were, you know, he, he didn't insult the audience. He knew that the audience would get it. And, um, you know, seeing the, the baby pictures on the refrigerator as we end the scene um, and having the baby cry in the background is just, I thought that that was really well done. Um, editorially, I didn't have to do much, but um, as a filmmaker, I appreciated how he approached it. Um, so yeah, those are some of the scenes. I mean, there's more, but I, you know, like I said, there's so many of them. Um, but those are some of the scenes that stand out to me. Yeah, I was curious. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, you know, as an editor, cinematographer, director, if there's anything uh, that you're in the process of uh, putting together. Well, there's a lot of things that I'm doing uh, directorially right now that I'm developing. Uh, I'm working on my feature script, Pray for a Little More Spring. Um, my girlfriend is actually a partner of mine. She she wrote Docket, um, so we're uh, developing the second season of Docket right now. Um, we're actually having a reading for it in a couple weeks, so we're doing that. Um, there's some short films that we have that two of them we like to shoot in Grenada, and one we like to shoot here in New York. Um, so we have a, and also um, I'm close to having an opportunity to do a project with ESPN as well. Um, so. There's a lot of things directorially that uh, seem to be popping up on the horizon that I want to pursue. Uh, I really want to take the next step forward as a director uh, in this upcoming year. So my focus has been on that. Uh, editorially, we just finished up, Spike and I just finished up um, another 30, well, another little Spike joints for ESPN um, on the David Tyree helmet catch for the Giants against the Patriots. So that's coming out uh, in the spring. Um, and a couple other things going on, but the uh, Giants piece we just finished in season two of Docket and then the shorts and my feature script are my main focuses right now. So that's, uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what's on the, on the slate. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, another season of Docket because I really enjoyed uh, yeah, watching yeah, the ones that Yeah, it's going to be good, man. I'm excited. I don't, sorry to cut you off. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just excited about it. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, doing it. it we're... I guess we're following the, the miniseries format or the true detective format. We're going to have all new characters and a whole new, whole new story. So um, I'm really excited about what we've been coming up with lately. So oh, Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for taking the time. And I uh, also want to let you know I saw the, uh, the Ray Allen piece, uh, the ESPN. I really enjoyed oh, that. Oh, yeah. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I guess he. I guess Spike Lee's thinking about doing another. He's got game. Sort of a follow up film to that. 
Yeah, I hope so. Um, I guess the story is everybody's on board, but they have to they have to sell it to Denzel to see if he's if he's uh, interested in doing it. So I hope he is, and I hope uh, I hope they do it because he got game is a tremendous film. It's a great film. Yeah, I think I think uh, you know using a real basketball player instead of you know just hiring an actor to play that part was uh, you know was essential to it. You know, he, he got a great performance out of Ray Allen, even though I, I don't think he ever ever acted before. Right, I agree, and I think um, I think that's where Spike's love for sports really helped him on the film side because he understood that you know you re- you really can't an actor can't replicate the intricacies and the mentality and the abilities of a real professional basketball player. So um, I think it was good that or cool that Spike had so much confidence in Susan Bastian, the acting coach, that you know. If you got a professional athlete, you can she can work up her magic to make it work, um, you know, performance-wise. So the film doesn't fall flat. So um, I really think Spike's enthusiasm and obsession with sports, which I which I share with him as well. Um, I'm just as crazy about sports as he is. I think that served him well for he got game, and hopefully they have a, a sequel. Hopefully I'm a part of it in some way. <laughs>